Welcome back to part three of the neurology episode of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. We're moving on to Jess Stabler talking about the ESET trial from The Lancet in 2020. This is the ESET trial or the efficacy of levetiracetam, phosphenitoin and valproate for established status epilepticus by age group, a double-blind response-adaptive randomised control trial by James Chamberlain et al. This is a study that was performed in the US. Um, it was a multi-center double-blinded RCT. There were 58 emergency departments that were involved in recruiting for this study. So it was fairly large. You were considered eligible for inclusion if you presented in established status epilepticus. So that was defined as seizure activity for over five minutes duration with appropriate first dose of benzodiazepines. It was anyone over the age of two years old presenting in established status. They were excluded if they had been in status for over 30 minutes by presentation and also if they were known to be pregnant a prisoner, if they'd had a, a hypoxic brain injury or a clear precipitant such as trauma or hypoglycemia. They randomized patients in uh, stratified to age group to one of the three treatment arms, either Keppra, Phosphenitoin or Valproate as their initial anticonvulsant. Everyone in the study was blinded to that allocation. However, they did allow for unmasking by the treating team if it was felt necessary at the 60-minute mark. I guess if someone was having ongoing seizures and you were needing to provide additional anticonvulsants. The primary outcome that they looked at was the absence of clinically apparent seizures with improved consciousness and without additional anti-seizure medications at one hour. And so I guess that's just an important thing to point out that they did require both the seizures to have been aborted, but also for improvement in the level of consciousness, I suppose, trying to exclude non-convulsive status through that measure. But I think that that did have some implications in their results and the efficacy, which we can touch on in due course. Primary safety outcomes were life-threatening hypotension or cardiac arrhythmia, and then they had secondary safety outcomes that were pre-specified, including the need for intubation, acute seizures recurring within a 12-hour window after the start of the first infusion, respiratory depression, and mortality. So going into the details of the study, they recruited 478 patients of whom 225 were children, so less than 18. 186 were adults aged 18 to 65. Um, and then 51 were older adults, which they defined as over 65. In terms of the interventions, so the phosphenitone, which again, we can discuss a little bit in due course. So it is a prodrug of phenytoin that is not available to my knowledge in Australia, but can be administered slightly more rapidly than phenytoin can, but is broken down to phenytoin. So it's the same active ingredient. Theoretically has less likelihood of the cardiac side effects. However, I don't think that that has actually been completely borne out or perhaps that merit has been oversold in clinical practice. They gave appropriate loading doses of the anticonvulsant phosphenytoin 20 mg per kilo valproate 40 mg per kilo and levetiracetam 60 mg per kilo. 
they were allocated in an age stratified one-to-one-to-one basis. And so looking at the results of the study, it was actually a negative study, but I think that that is important. And I think that this is actually a very pragmatic and relevant study for us all. So there was no statistically significant difference in the rate of seizure freedom across all of the seizure groups. So it was about 50% of patients who met that primary outcome across each group. There was also no difference in the primary safety outcomes between groups. So that was the hypotension or cardiac arrhythmia across the three groups. And the only statistically significant safety measure was the rate of intubation that was increased in the pediatric osphenitoin group. And so that was 24 of their cohort, which was 33%. So a sizable group required intubation versus 8% in the Kepra group and 11% in the Val Pro 8 group in the discussion, that was an unexpected result and not in keeping with the remainder of the literature. So that was a little bit of a question mark that they came up with from this trial. That's kind of the nuts and bolts of the trial. There were a couple of points that are just worth highlighting just in terms of the way their recruitment in particular. So they did initially um, have a planned sample size of 795 patients. They were quite significantly below that with their recruitment of 478 patients. However, they did have kind of pre-specified interim analyses. And so they had a interim analysis set for five once they had recruited 400 and then 500 patients. And so this was a result of the set interim analyses meeting their futility criteria, i.e. that there was no difference between these medications and they felt that the likelihood of them having missed a statistically significant difference between the efficacy of the interventions was less than 1%. I think that it is a relevant study in that I think that this is very common presentation to the emergency departments. I think that we do have a number of good potential first-line anti-seizure medications that can be administered, but there was no evidence kind of directing us to one being superior over the others. And I think that this just highlights that we can be confident in the selection of any of those agents according to what is available and also specific patient characteristics. Thanks, Jess. There were a few things I have to admit that just didn't sit quite right with me for for this study. They did comment on a number of patients that were enrolled despite not meeting enrolment criteria, which I found unusual. And the breadth of the population that they looked at, this is not just a pediatric study, this is an adult study. You know, there are hugely different causes of seizures for, for people of different ages. Is that going to have affected the results here? Is this something that we need to kind of look into on a more micro level? I think that that's a very good point. So there are certainly different causes of patients presenting in status across these different age groups. I suppose in terms of the treatment of status itself, I mean, the ultimate goal is seizure termination, which is really what they were looking at here, rather than the treatment of the underlying cause of seizures. And I think that they are two different questions. Is seizure termination going to be different based on the cause of Definitely. So I think they have tried to exclude some of those. So patients who have a neurosurgical trauma, obvious precipitant, they tried to exclude. This was looking at all comers in mm. status. So within status, there are degrees of refractory status through to those who do abort appropriately after first-line anticonvulsants through to those super refractory cases who are definitely a very different kettle of fish to those who do terminate. So yes, it is a heterogeneous group. 
I think that this is sort of a pragmatic trial for that reason. They have just looked at all comers in status, which, yes, is a motley crew of all comers. (laughs) (laughs) I think they initially wanted to enroll about 800 people into this study, didn't they? Yeah, Um, But eventually ended up enrolling 400 something. Just um, over half of what they were trying. With a couple of hundred that didn't meet the eligibility criteria. Mm. Do you think that's impacted the results here potentially? I think it has. And I think that there are a couple of other things. So I guess it's the challenge of conducting trials in the emergency situation. It's the the same, for instance, in acute stroke trials, you know, those uh, those kind of hyperacute situations. I think enrolment can be challenging for those reasons. The other thing that is kind of striking to me that will absolutely have affected this cohort is the number of non-epileptic seizures, which mm. I couldn't actually see in this paper, but there are actually two publications on this same trial. And it was 10% of their cohort that were ultimately felt to have non-epileptic seizures. That group is going to be overrepresented in the cohort of prolonged seizures, yep. I suppose. Yep. So I think that there are a number of challenges, not just this trial, but in kind of trying to create a homogenous group of people in what is a heterogeneous emergency presentation. I suppose they did identify the fact that these patients hadn't had an EEG as a limitation within this study, but that does represent the real world. Right? Yeah, that yeah. And, and so I guess it could be looked at as either a strength or a weakness, yeah. I think. It is reflective of real world clinical practice that you cannot get an EEG. And really for convulsive status, which is what they're dealing with, arguably you don't need an EEG for convulsive status. Yeah. It's different if someone comes in in convulsive status and is not waking up appropriately. Those people you definitely definitely need an EEG in. But for all comers, convulsive status, you shouldn't need an EEG to determine success of treatment. You touched briefly on phosphenitoin versus phenytoin. Mm. Do you think that the results would be different had phenytoin been used instead? Is there any literature that looks at that? Good question. Phosphenytoin is a prodrug, so it gets converted to phenytoin. And so my understanding is that it will terminate status in about the same time frame as phenytoin will because that conversion needs to happen. So you can administer it more rapidly is, I believe, the kind of reason that it became popular and is used in the States because you can infuse it theoretically more rapidly with decreased cardiotoxicity. However, in terms of the actual primary outcome, it is no more efficacious than phenytoin in terminating status. And because of that conversion process that needs to happen, it won't terminate status any earlier than phenytoin will. In terms of exclusions, the one other thing that I guess raised an eyebrow for me was that they didn't actually exclude toxicologically induced status epilepticus, which I think is a particularly salient population because those are the patients where you don't necessarily want to use sodium channel blockers to stop their seizures. I guess a point of interest there. This paper broadly seems to mirror the results of the landmark papers in the pediatric population concept and eclipse papers from 2019, which I think really sort of heralded the widespread use of levetiracetam, particularly in the pediatric population Mm -hmm. for status epilepticus. Are there any other similar adult population papers that looked at this question or is this the first? I believe that this is the first time that they have looked at the three agents and done kind of head-to-head comparison across the three groups. It did seem, looking at the sub-analysis, and obviously this needs to be taken with many grains of salt, there seem to be some signals that different agents would be sort of more efficacious for different sort of age groups. Particularly, it seemed that in some of the older populations, valproate seemed to perform slightly better. In your experience, is there 
you know, one of these agents that you tend to have as a go-to? It comes down to what we were kind of touching on before, that it's a very mixed bag that they have included in this cohort. There are certain situations where you would favour one over another, but it can be kind of fairly nuanced stuff. But for instance, if someone has a known generalised epilepsy, then certainly valproate will be the agent of choice for them. And there are certain genetic conditions such as Dravet syndrome where sodium channel blockade can actually exacerbate seizures. So there are specific situations where if you have that knowledge, you would reach for one anticonvulsant over another. But I think in terms of kind of all comers status presentations, I feel like it's more common practice now that Kepra will be first line for a lot of individuals based off the fact that it is easy to administer and has less interactions than others. But I think unless we have a compelling reason to choose one over another based on a specific known diagnosis, then they should be considered to be fairly equivalent. In someone who's just got a general seizure disorder and epilepsy, who's coming in with status epilepticus, who's known to be taking a specific medication, say they're known to be on Keppra. We don't know what the compliance is. It's going to take several hours to get a level. Are you reloading them with Keppra or are you using a different agent and, you know, vice versa for, for the other agents? Good question. And it probably does depend a little bit on the patient and if there is a known history of non-compliance, then you would probably feel fairly confident that this is going to be non-compliance and then it would be fine to reload with Kepra. It also probably depends a little bit on what their dose is. So if someone's on, say, 500 BD of Kepra, then they're nowhere near max dose. And so you'd, again, feel comfortable giving them a proper loading dose of Kepra. If, however, there's collateral history or something that they have been taking their medication and they're on 1.5 grams BD or something like that, then I'd probably be reaching for a different agent. So just on dosing, I think it's actually quite interesting because it seems for some reason with status, people seem to grossly underdose in multiple ways. So people will start thinking about intubation with really suboptimal benzo. So giving a couple of doses of five milligrams of midazolam to quite a big adult person, I don't think constitutes a proper trial of those the benzodiazepines as a first line agent. And I think it's really important to think about how much we need to give. And along with Kepra, I know the dose has been creeping up for a while. And I think it's important for people to remember that old teaching or the initial teaching, which years ago, where that we were giving 20 milligrams per kilogram. I think we've realized that's really not right. And then we moved up to 40 and obviously now we've hit 60. And even I think now, if you ask a lot of emergency nurses to draw up four and a half grams of Kepra, they would start to be asking questions. But yeah, be really mindful of those dose increases and be really mindful of giving enough because if you're not, you're underserving your patients. And I guess that's a good point with Venitoin as well. So we give the 20 mgs per kg, but that needs to be followed with a level about two hours following. And for someone with status, we're wanting to make sure that they are in the higher end of the therapeutic range. So kind of 15 to 20. If they're not, then we would give them an additional dose. If you go into the outcomes and explanation of what those outcomes mean, I think their definition of respiratory depression is quite interesting. So they've defined respiratory depression as an impairment that's requiring endotracheal intubation and mechanical ventilation. And so they've excluded patients from that group who required any sort of supraglottic ventilation. And that ranges, you know, from bag valve masking to LMA use. 
and also excludes patients who only required intubation for a decreased level of consciousness. So I don't know how they've made that assessment to say that they just had impaired ventilation. The intubation definitely wasn't due to their level of consciousness. Um, <laughs> it might have just been poorly explained in this, but I just don't really know how to interpret that. And for me, someone with respiratory depression, that also probably needs to encompass people who are requiring someone to bag them for a while. <laughs> Presuming that the patient has landed in the ED from the pre-hospital setting, they've already had their two doses of benzos. How soon are you giving that first-line anti-epileptic drug and how long are you going to wait for it to work or you give something else? I find that the three steps in my mind are benzos, your first-line anti-epileptic agents, and the next one is intubation in my mind, right? So along those lines, that's actually in order is the amount of time it takes to carry out each step. So as the patient's arriving, I ask for benzos to be drawn up. Usually mine of choice is midazolam. And as they hit the bed, given they've probably been seizing for about at least 30 minutes, usually by that stage, by the time they hit your bed, especially if the initial call was for the status, I just give them a dose of midazolam. I take handover, make sure they haven't had huge amounts, and then I give them some more. Really, the only thing you have to lose is decreased level of consciousness. But when you've had someone who's been seizing for 30 minutes, that's really not on the cards. And I think by that point, you've almost committed to their intubation. So even being perfectly ambitious, it takes far longer to carry out each of those steps than any guideline will tell you to do. So it takes longer than 10 minutes to go from benzos to an anti-epileptic drug, which you need to, you know, put in a line, draw up all the medication, put it in a pump set look up any infusion protocol you need to do and give that medication. And then we all know it takes far longer than ten, another 10 minutes to intubate a patient. Even preparing, drawing up all your things will often take too long. So I think preparing for those three steps at exactly the same time. So giving the benzos is by far the fastest thing to do. Then moving on to the antiepileptic while in your mind and practically speaking, you're preparing for intubation is my approach. Obviously, if the patient wakes up, you know, they're all good at that point, you can avert intubation. And sometimes by this point, maybe you've got medication-induced issues and you need to intubate them anyway. Realistically, if you're thinking of them as three separate steps, much in the same way we don't do in a trauma setting or, or anything, we don't tend to do A and then stop and then do B and then do stop and then stop and then do C. If you think about all three steps concurrently, I think you'll find that you're not actually going to do any prematurely. I'm going to ask a silly stats question. What on earth is a response adaptive trial? I can answer that. Please <laughs> help us. Let's say that you have three different groups and what you want to do is allocate patients to the best treatment. Obviously, this is randomized. Everyone is blinded. No one knows what they're having. Let's say their responsiveness of Valparade uh, phenytoin uh, was 50, whereas the Kepra was 65. That implies that Kepra is the best. So you want to allocate patients to that group because it's actually better, isn't it? But you want to keep your study in numbers. So what these allocations or these computer allocations that does is that switches or sort of diverts the, the allocation towards more towards the Kepra rather than the other ones. So, and that's the reason to do this sub analysis at different uh, times of a trial. So, and, and it's helpful to make sure that what you're doing is actually allocating more patients to the best treatment. So that increases the probability of those patients have a benefit. So that's the responsive adaptive trial. And it's adaptive because it adapts to the results, to the analysis. And the response is because it actually is 
to allocate to response, better response treatment. So Jess, maybe we might revisit the paper and just touch base your take-home points. We should feel confident in using any of the agents as they are kind of available to us because there is not clear superiority in any of them, which I think is good, relevant, useful for us to know. It comes down to having agents that you are familiar with, comfortable with, and that the nursing staff are familiar and comfortable with the administration of. Uh, we should feel confident in using any of our kind of first-line anticonvulsants to manage status. Thanks so much, Jess, who is now a seasoned stalwart of the podcast. (laughs) Um, And if you haven't listened to her on the Women in Medicine episode, I would highly recommend it. I'd now like to introduce James Tadros talking on sustainability. There's been a lot of talk about sustainability, I think, in recent years in the world in general. Electric cars have come to the fore. You know, people are talking about renewable energy. There's a lot about food security and especially with the rise of COVID and supply chain issues. We're thinking, how can we make what we have last longer? In medicine, we've talked about sustainability in a variety of spheres, including sustainability of ourselves and well-being and continuing our careers while also fulfilling our own needs. I think one that people don't like to often speak about is healthcare spending and the sustainability of our public healthcare system in general and what we do on a day-to-day basis and how that affects the ability of the healthcare system to continue running for, for generations. And I think it'd be really important to be aware of that because if we don't start to make decisions about this soon, as medical professionals, but also as society, we'll run the risk of losing public healthcare system, which we know and love. I'll just quote 2019-20 figures because that's what's published. Australia spent $202.5 billion on healthcare. That equates to $7,900 per person. And that's increased year on year. The decade average for that decade was 3.4% per year, even accounting for inflation. Around 41% comes from federal, about 26% state. Individuals cover 17% and 8% comes from our health insurance. And the remainder is other non-government sources. All this accounts to about 10% of our GDP. And if you compare that to about 20 years ago, in 2001, it was 8.3%. That doesn't sound like a huge amount, but if that continues, we'll eventually lose our ability to run our healthcare system the same way we want to. This is particularly uncomfortable because putting a price on healthcare is very difficult politically, and it's not something you'll hear our politicians talking about. But it's something we need to start thinking about because eventually we're just going to run out and it's all fine to ignore the issue. But if it creeps up on it, I I think it's something I'm quite passionate about. Something I just want to highlight to everyone just because I think the first step of this all is awareness. Despite all this, Australia's healthcare spending is actually quite efficient compared to other countries. We're well outside of the top 10 of countries with healthcare spending with the US coming on top despite their perceived very poor social healthcare system. But are we getting our money's worth is the question. And how can we improve efficiency of healthcare spending? Because I think it really starts with us. And unless we highlight issues, no one's really going to help us. I think COVID really highlighted how government spending on healthcare can be efficient or can be seen as efficient. A lot of money was put towards COVID. And I'm sure each of us within our own departments or within our hospitals, we may have felt some of that COVID money as it was came to be called filtering through. And I think a lot of that was put forward because there were true economic costs of the pandemic continuing. There continued to be economic costs of the pandemic, but obviously coming out of it quicker was a real incentive for the government. And at that time, we saw a lot of healthcare spending, whether it be efficient or inefficient. And some of us would argue there was some waste to that as well. 
The other thing that's often floated is, is how expensive is healthcare towards the end of life? There's a range of figures, but it's somewhere between 80 and 25% of healthcare spending on an individual will occur in the last year of their life. And that can be grouped into two separate groups. There are obviously the actively dying and receiving palliative care, but another group of people who we don't know are going to die. And whether that's people receiving quite expensive chronic care in terms of in the community as well as in hospital, or whether it's receiving intensive care in hospital for a prolonged period of time, but ultimately passing away. We need to start thinking whether that is efficient spending. And I think this is where it becomes a bit morbid in terms of what is the cost of a human life. I think if you ask a lot of doctors, they'll say, oh, you know, you can't really put a cost. But I, I can guarantee you if we crunch the numbers, we can put a figure down. Because there are treatments which we don't offer to everyone. There are treatments which are seem as prohibitively expensive to, to offer to every single person who walks through the door. And I know it sounds terrible, but in certain situations where emergency departments that we work in become overwhelmed, I'm sure all of us have seen situations where people suffer morbidity or mortality directly as a result of a lack of ability to treat those patients in a timely manner. And I think within that scope, that's a person who you could realistically have done more for if you had more resources at that point in time. And I think that's a preemptive cost that's been put forward. That's a preemptive decision that's been made to limit healthcare spending, but with the known cost of morbidity and mortality later down the track. It's impossible to have a 100% effective healthcare system. And that's where that balance comes into play. But we need to start being more aware of that and acting on it, or at least thinking about it initially so that when decisions come to it, when we're all more senior or uh, when we can lobby our politicians to do something, we have equipment or we're equipped with that knowledge to bring forward. I think the healthcare system, again, we need to start thinking about how we can improve efficiency. I think one of those ways maybe is to reduce the false economies of what we do. So many people wait in hospital in an inpatient bed waiting for a scan. I think we've all come across that multiple times and whether we need to start looking at improving investigations or improving accessibility to investigations in order to improve throughput of less efficient settings, which is obviously the hospital. There's a simple case where I saw as an intern where this really was highlighted to me and where I sort of started to think about this, where I was an intern on a cardiology team and there was a man who was admitted overnight with chest pain who couldn't complete his stress test the following day because he had no shoes. He subsequently waited an entire 24 hours further in hospital while he waited for a family member to come the next day and buy him shoes. At that point, I sat down and I asked someone, can't we just go down to Westfield and pick up a pair of brand new runners for this man for $100? And that would save an entire 24-hour hospital admission for this man. And I was told, no, you know, that, that can't be achieved because too many hoops to jump through, too many layers between that cost and the practicality. And I think that really highlighted to me how disconnected most doctors are to the system and how we can start to improve that or, or what we can start thinking about doing. And I, I don't know, I don't have the solutions to these problems, but it's something I probably want to put forward to better minds than myself to start thinking about. Unfortunately, if we don't start addressing this problem soon, you can see even with that GDP rise from 8.3 to 10%, within the next decade or two, we're really going to start having to make tough decisions that are forced upon us rather than things we can proactively do to improve efficiency. Thanks very much, James. A lot of food for thought there, and I agree. I think it's a really important topic that we need to be very aware of.
Now, after that little dose of realism, I think it's time for our favorite moment in this podcast. It's Kit's Corner. There was an era of darkness in neurology when chimpanzee experiments were commonplace. Thankfully, now that's less the case. I came across an interesting fact this week about the pygmy chimp, or bonobo, that I'd like to share. Did you know that the etymology of bonobo likely comes from the mislabeling of the container housing some of the first specimens, which were from Bolobo, a town on the Congo River? I didn't. Just a silly, quirky fact. I'm not sure where these things come from. Once again, it's that time for us to depart for another month. You've been listening to the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club, and if you'd like to contact us, we are, as always, available on westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. We'd like to thank our guests, Drs. Jess Stabler, Sainagaratnam, Kim Van Vu, Hugo Morales, and James Tadros. And from myself and the team here, we'll see you next time. Ain't no place to hide, ain't no one to run to Here we go, here we go again Call my bluff and you wanna be my friend I'm the one you ride